That song is so appropriate for today. Like, you wait. That's right on the money. Thank you so much. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, has been crucified. The Son of God, he willingly, he knowingly, he lovingly, he submitted himself to the false accusations of those Jewish religious leaders. He submitted himself to the fatal punishment of the Roman court. He took the cumulative sin. He took the collective treason of all of humanity, past and present and future, all of it, and he submitted himself to it all, to death, even death on a cross. And with his last living breath, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. He died. And the religious and the political establishment, the principalities and the powers of this world, they thought that they had dealt with Jesus for good. Dead. Done. Finished. But they did not have the last say. Last week, Dan McPhee, he led us through the end of John chapter 19 and into chapter 20, where we met Mary Magdalene on the third day, where she discovered that the tomb was empty. And she was totally distraught. And so she went back and she got Peter and and John, who then had a race, it seemed, back to the tomb, which John won, importantly. And then they saw it too. The stone had been rolled away. The tomb was empty and the grave clothes had been neatly folded. And then when the others had gone, Mary encountered the risen Christ face to face and he called her by name, Mary. Today we're going to linger in this scene a little bit longer. We're going to tease out a couple couple more themes and I'm going to backtrack and start in John 20 verse 11 and we're going to go through to verse 29 today and I'm going to be reading from the ESV. The words are not going to be on the screen and so have we got our Bibles? I know that Bron has. Wave it around Bron. Look at that. Woohoo! Have we got Bibles? If you've got your phone, if you've got your phone ready, John 20 Starting at verse 11, we're going to be doing a little bit of Bible work today. It's important that you you follow along. Let me pray before we do that, before we open the scripture together. Father, we we need your help. We ask that by your spirit that you would help us to, to see and to read and to understand that we would see you, that by your spirit that you would reveal truth to us in what we read and what we talk about today. We know that we can't do that on our own. We need you, Lord God. Illuminate the truth. To us, we pray. Amen. John 20, starting at verse 11. So Peter and John, they've just run back home. I don't know who won that race. Um, But Mary, Mary Magdalene, she's now at the tomb and she's on her own. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. 
And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So John doesn't miss a trick. We've learnt that as we've been tracking with him over the last year or so. And so we know that John is constantly looking back into that Israelite narrative. He he looks back into the Exodus narrative in particular and also into Genesis as well so that we would see the continuity of the story throughout. And here's Mary in a garden and it's the eighth day, the first day of a new week. And Mary supposes this man is the gardener. Well, who was the first gardener? Who was the first gardener? Adam. And here is the new Adam. Here is the first of a new creation. Here is Jesus, the first of a whole new humanity here in the garden. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbinite which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. My Father, your Father, my God, your God. Mary, I'm announcing to you that the adoption has come through. My father is your father and our father is God. Go and tell the others. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. After suffering the, the, the violence of the religious and of the political institutions and with the scars to prove it, the first thing the true Lord, the true King declares is peace. You'll remember back in chapter 18 and Jesus has been questioned by Pilate and Pilate asks him this question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Mine is not a kingdom of swords and of chariots and of violence. That's your world, Pilate. My kingdom is one of peace. It's a different world. Jesus said to them again, verse 21, what did he say? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is 
withheld. Now, of course, there is a whole sermon right here. It's not the one for today, but I will make a couple of points. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the Great Commission in John's Gospel. So we're very familiar with the Great Commission uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And if you've got your Bibles, you can go to it. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. Somebody just go, yep, when you've got it. Yep. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So this is the same commission. So what we read in John and what we read in Matthew are the same commission to go, to be sent in his authority. And so there's got to be a connection between what we read in John's gospel all about forgiveness and then what we read about making disciples and obeying Jesus' commands in Matthew's Gospel. Make sense? And of course there is a connection and it's a simple one, but these things, often they're not apparent straight away. The command that Jesus gave was to what? What was the command that he gave? A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. John 13, 34. So this is the command. Love one another. And then a disciple is what? We've got one piece of evidence for what a disciple is. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the very next verse. John 13, 35. So the command is to love one another. And a disciple is one who obeys the command. The commission to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey my command then, is the commission to go and love people into becoming the kind of people who go and love people. Well, what kind of love are we talking about? What is this love? What does it look like? We know what kind of love it is, don't we? Do you remember the word? Agape, agape love. This, this love, this agape, it is the self-emptying, self-donating. It is the others-focused love. When Jesus says, love one another, this is the love that he is talking about. When John sums up his best understanding of who this God is, and he says, God is love, this is the love that he has in mind, agape it is the self-emptying love, the eternal love that exists between Father, Son and Spirit since before the foundation of the cosmos. Father, Son and Spirit love one another. They exist in an everlasting communion of this reciprocating, others-focused love, always giving, always receiving, always giving forward, always forward giving, 
always forgiving. And this is the root of the word forgiveness. Forward giving. This is the essence of agape. It is the essence of divine love. And so as a matter of of inherent and eternal necessity, this is the love that Jesus demonstrates on the cross because it's who he is. Self-emptying, others-focused, reciprocating self-givenness, forward-givenness, not operating out of self-love, rather out of this inexhaustible love for the other, sacrificing any self-oriented need for revenge, for compensation, for payback. This is the paradigm of the cross. This is the character of the king. The enemy loving, turn the other cheek, lay your life down, king. This self-sacrificial declaration of forgiveness that we see on the cross is the purest example of divine love that we have been given. So when Paul is giving instruction to to the fledgling church in Ephesus, he says this, he says, Be kind to each other, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. He says the same thing to the Colossian church. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, just as the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is what Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember we looked at this in some detail a couple of months ago at the foot washing scene. This is the core message in that foot washing scene. And if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. It's worth another watch. We explored this deep theological truth that in in God's order of relationship, it's the forgiver that pays the price. This principle is the crux of the cross. And it's why Jesus implores us, pick up your cross daily and follow me. The forgiver pays the price. This self-sacrificial forgiveness is the best example of others-focused love that we have. And as Christ followers, we are to copy it as the very fabric of our own life, as the very essence of our life together, as the ones called out. Forgivenness is the great commission and the great commandment in one word. Keep going. Verse 24, back into John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, pretty gross, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and have believed. Representing all of humanity, Caiaphas the high priest accused Jesus of blasphemy and the religious court sentenced him to death. Then the legal court of Pilate upheld a charge of treason and they too sentenced him to death and they executed him on a cross and he died. But the higher court, the higher court of father, son and spirit overruled the religious court. They overruled the political court. They overruled the sentencing and they even overruled death. And Jesus was raised. He was vindicated. He was exonerated. And the, the religious powers and the pr political principalities of this world, they were put to shame. They were judged, overruled. Here's your proof. Stick your finger here. Believe. Anyway, that was the introduction. I want to focus back at the start of this passage. So if you go back to verse 11 in John 20, verse 11, 12, a little bit of 13. Are you there? Hidden here is a glimpse into the magnitude of what's going on here, of what Jesus has achieved. But if you blink, you'll miss it. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped, to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Two angels, one at each end of this slab where Jesus would lay. Where have we seen that before? Where have we seen the two angels at each end of this slab? The Ark of the Covenant. Go with me to Exodus 25. This is John being clever again. Exodus 25, verse 17. Give me a yep when you're there. Exodus 25, 17. Then make the Ark's cover the place of atonement from pure gold. Must be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. Didn't know they used inches then. Then make two cherubim, these are angelic beings from hammered gold, and place them at the two ends of the atonement cover. Mould the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover with their wings spread above it. They will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover 
between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there I will give you my commandments, commands for the people of Israel. Now, what, what was in the ark? So we, we've just been told, what was in the ark? What was the first thing? The law, the tablet. So we've got the law in the ark. What else went into the ark? Can you remember? Aaron's staff, which had budded. Yep. And what was the other one? The, the manna. So we've got the law and we've got the manna and we've got the staff that had budded. Now, all three of these things, they look forward to Jesus because Jesus is the fulfilment of the law. Jesus is the true bread. Jesus is the true vine. He is the tree of life. Jesus is the new covenant, flesh and blood. He is the new covenant. Our Catholic brothers and sisters refer to Mary, Mother Mary, pregnant Mother Mary, they refer to Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant because she carries within her the New Covenant. So the Ark's cover, the place of atonement, is also called the mercy seat. And that's what it might have been in, in whatever translation you read. In the ESV, in verse 17, it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And you'll make the two cherubim of gold on the two ends of the mercy seat. So this mercy seat, the, the place of atonement, the lid that goes on the ark with the cherubim, with the angels at each end, is where God meets with us. It's where God uh, met with Moses. You might remember in Exodus 33, God met with Moses and they spoke face to face. The mercy seat is the place of fellowship between God and human. I will meet you there. Now, we know that the presence of God is dangerous. We've got plenty of evidence of that throughout, throughout Scripture. It's deadly even. His complete otherness is just too much for our feeble, dirt-based humanity to bear. And so God, desiring to be in relationship with his people, he makes a way for that to happen. He makes a way for us to be in fellowship with him without spontaneously combusting. And this is what this word atonement is all about. It's a funny Christian word. To atone is to cover. Right? That's what the mercy seat is. It is a cover. And then atonement, as we understand it in scripture, is to somehow cleanse, somehow purify, somehow cover over our sin, cover over our mortality and make it possible for humans to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of the divine. And atonement is not only dealing with sin as a, as a moral issue about being bad. Rather, sin broadly has to do with this decaying and compromised nature of creation. That's the problem. Humanity, through rebellion, introduced death and decay into the created order in some new way that is not good. God is life and therefore death 
and decay. They are non-God and must be atoned for. They must be covered so that we can be in relationship. This word atonement, it's an English word. Uh, It's a translation of the Hebrew word kapir. And atonement literally means, in the English language, it means at one moment. Atonement, at one moment. Atonement is the condition of being at one with others. Atonement is to reconcile. It is to unite. And you'll remember that this is the thrust of the whole flipping book. Unity, oneness, fellowship. Go back and read John 17 again. It is the key. In Leviticus, Leviticus is the book of the law. It's a fun book. In in Leviticus, we read how this mercy seat is used as the place of atonement. We, We learn how it works. We learn how you turn it on. Once a year, the blood of a a blemish-free goat is sprinkled on the mercy seat. It's sprinkled on this atonement cover to cleanse it, to cover our rebellious and decaying morality with a symbol of purity and innocence and life. And this atoning sacrifice bridges the gap between the holy and the unholy, between life and non-life, and not just for people, but also for things. Things have to be atoned for because all of creation has been corrupted and is subject to death and decay. So all of the stuff in the tabernacle, even the tabernacle itself, the tent, the tent of meeting, all of the, all of the things and the instruments all needed to be atoned for, all needed to be made hospitable for the divine presence of God so that he could remain in fellowship with the Israelites. Um, Turn with me. You can go to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15. Leviticus 16, 15. Give me a yay when when you're there. So he, the high priest, shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. So that's into the Holy of Holies. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, onto the mercy seat and in front of it, and in this way he'll make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So the atoning sacrifice, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, makes it possible for human beings to be in direct fellowship with God and not explode. Our unholiness is somehow covered, somehow cleansed, somehow purified. And when we understand it properly, we see that atonement is a gift. It is a gift from God. Even though humanity is, is fallen and broken and compromised, God loves his creation so much that he has made this elaborate and, and weird and confusing symbolic way for us to be together, for us to be in fellowship, to bridge the gap. You still with me? When was the first time... First time in scripture that we see a sacrifice of atonement 
sacrifice of covering. What do you reckon? When was the first time? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. Very, very early in the story. So straight after the tree of good and evil, apple snake incident, if you have a look in Genesis chapter 3, you can go there too, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? I've heard somebody speak about this and say that these are the three saddest words in the Bible. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Go down to verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here's the first sacrifice, the first sacrifice of atonement, of covering. No sooner had humanity compromised fellowship and God made a way for it to be restored. And for whose benefit was this covering? Was it for God's? Was God offended by the nakedness of Adam and Eve? No. It was for Adam and Eve's benefit. Confronted by their own nakedness, their own shame, their own guilt, their own fear, they took themselves out of fellowship. They hid. And so God made atonement. He made a covering to deal with their guilt, to deal with their shame so they could stay in relationship. Now, they had a go at it. Do you remember? They had a go at it. They tried to sew together some fig leaves. We do that too, don't we? We have a go of it. But it was not sufficient. God provided something better. God provided a covering, an atonement, through the life of an animal, it seems. Now, fast Fast forward, after the cross, the church is expanding across the ancient Near East and the Apostle Paul is reflecting on what Christ has achieved for everyone, what he has achieved for both Jews and Gentiles. And so have a look in Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Let me know when you're there. Romans 3, 24. This is the NIV. Paul writes, all are justified freely by his grace. So Jews and Gentiles made right freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, to be received by believing. It's the same word. So there it is, atonement. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now Christ is God, remember. And so God is presenting himself in Christ as a covering over our decaying mortality so that we might be together in everlasting at-one-ment. We're in the New Testament, so we're dealing with the Greek language here. 
And the word translated here as atonement is this fun Greek word, ilasterion. God presented Christ as ilasterion. Now get this. You're going to have to hang on to somebody at the moment, right? Put your steady one another. You're going to have to put a hand on a shoulder, put your hand on somebody because this is going to knock you over. You ready? Illusterion is the Greek word for mercy seat. You okay? God presented Jesus as the mercy seat. God presented Jesus as the atonement cover. N.T. Wright translates this as God put Jesus forth as the place of mercy. Young's literal translation says Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as the mercy seat. God in Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the place. He is the means of atonement. He is the way by which our fear and our guilt and our shame and our nakedness and our brokenness and our decay and our mortality, they are covered so that we might be in everlasting communion with him, face to face, at one. All of our fallen shortness, past and present and future, is all covered by his blood, the blood of God, at the place of of atonement. And this is what John is winking at here. These two angels, one at either end of the place where Jesus, the new covenant, was laid. This is the place. It's the mercy seat. Oneness, union, fellowship, face to face, Secured right here, the blood of the perfect lamb sprinkled on the mercy seat. Sin is beaten. Death is defeated. Separation is overcome. No more fear. No more shame. It is done. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw the two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head the other at the foot, and they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? We're going to celebrate this new covenant together now. So those that are kind of organised to help out with communion, and do you need extra help? We'll be right. So we're going to celebrate that together now. This is the covenant of flesh and blood. It is the covenant of of communion, of oneness. And the imagery here is more profound than we're ever going to get our heads around or we're ever going to get our hearts around. So let me just ask you this. Do you know the one who has it covered? Have you met the creator, the lover of the universe, who has forever covered our shame? who has forever covered our fear, even death. Do you know the one who through radical self-sacrifice, through radical forgiveness, has obliterated the core problem of separation? Have you met him? Do you know him? 
Do you believe that it is already true? The Apostle Paul writes this in Colossians and I'm going to ask, I'll read this passage and you can close your eyes and when we're done, you can, you can hop up and make your way and, and be served communion and then the, the band will come up somewhere in there and we'll have a song. But at the moment, why don't you close your eyes and listen to this with everything else ringing in your ears. For God... In all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, and now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he's brought you into his own presence. You are holy, blameless, as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth. Stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. I invite you to go and to be served the flesh and blood covenant.